uh, something happens when you get old, you can't remember what you had for breakfast. You can't remember where you put your car keys. You walk into a room and you go, why am I in here? I had victory in that the other day. I walked in the room and immediately knew I was there. It was the bathroom, but I still, it was something, right? I, I consider that a victory. Um, but while you're losing those kinds of memory functions, you remember distinctly what happened 30 years ago, right? And so uh, that's sort of the trade-off. And I remember January 5th, 1992, like that, vividly. Um, I was 26 years old on that day. Uh, I had been married for five years, and our eldest child was six months old at that time. She is now a mother of five. And so that gives you a sense of how much time has passed during that time. But uh, this church was four years old. And actually, I don't even know if it's accurate to say that because uh, we weren't technically a church at that time. We were a church plant. We were a group of people that was meeting together to see if God would turn us into a church, basically. Um, and I had been for... At that time, about two and a half years serving as the youth pastor in that group. And uh, it was a group that just had tremendously good people, lots of wonderful folks who had excitement and vision and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but we were just starting out. We had basically no money. We did not own anything except a trailer that had some stuff in it because we were meeting in a school multi-purpose room and we would have to trailer in everything every Sunday and then trailer it back out. And, um, but one thing we did have was we had an absolutely fantastic, dynamic senior pastor. And he had been the pastor who planted the church. His name was Cliff Howery. Uh, his name still is Cliff Howery, come to think of it. <laughs> And the thing about Cliff was, uh, first of all, he was very experienced. Uh, he, he had a, you know, a seminary degree. He was well-trained. He had planted and pastored numerous other churches. Uh, he knew what he was doing. And he had this tremendous magnetic personality so that everyone who was in that church felt like they were there because they were his friends. And so everybody's connection in that church was not so much to each other as it was to him because he was that kind of dynamic guy, that kind of dynamic leader, and he still is. He's like 196 years old now, and he is still, he's probably watching this going, what did he say? No, he's... Uh, he is still that kind of vibrant personality, and he still has that kind of impact. Um, and uh, the, so because of that, the church was going great, despite um, various challenges that we were facing, because we were confident, because we had this great, experienced, well-trained, very gifted pastor who was leading us. And it just made everybody sort of feel like everything was going to be fine, at least until that Sunday. Cliff 
had informed us in October of 1991 that the Lord had called him and his family to move away and join another team uh, to pastor a different church. And anybody want to guess what state they moved to? Idaho, stinking Idaho. <laughs> sorry, did I say that out loud? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were called to Idaho, and he had let us know in like mid-October, hey, listen, this is happening, and I'm going to be moving to Idaho, and, and he stayed through the end of the year. So his last Sunday, the last Sunday in 1991 was Pastor Cliff's last Sunday in our church. <clears throat> And uh, he had announced that departure, as I said, in October, which meant that all of these people who were there because they were connected to Pastor Cliff got very uncomfortable. And so over the months between October and December, what we saw was just people quietly leaving, People drifting away. They had come to be a part of this team with Cliff, and now they weren't going to do that. And, and so gradually, you know, we had no money in the bank, and now we had less money in the bank. We had uh, not very many people in the seats, and now we had fewer people in the seats. And there was this uh, general question that we were looking at and saying, hey, is this time to just sort of fold this up? Um, because, uh, you know, we, we haven't really even gotten started yet. Maybe this is a time for us to just fold this up. We can donate what resources we have to other churches. We can all go join other churches and everything will be fine. And so we're just kind of wondering about that, praying about that and thinking about that. Um, and uh, the leaders of the church, though, came to the conclusion that we should give it a shot. We should see what happens. And so they asked me, if in addition to my youth ministry responsibilities, I would step in for a few weeks, fill the pulpit on Sunday mornings, preach and sort of take responsibility of leading the church until we could get a new uh, senior pastor. And so it fell to me on the first Sunday of 1992 to stand up in front of this congregation of people who were not committed, were not sure they wanted to stay and were scared to death and it was, our, it was my responsibility to stand up before them and somehow inspire them to finish the race, to continue on the course. And so <clears throat> that was what fell to me, a 26-year-old, untrained, uneducated, uh, clueless youth pastor. And um, when I started thinking about that this week, another vivid memory came back to me. Again, I don't know what I did last night, but I do know that when I was about five or six years old, I could picture this like it was yesterday. My dad would come home from work and he would go to the dad chair where only dad was allowed to sit. And he would sit down in his dad chair and he would kick off his shoes and they would sit on the floor next to his chair And if he wore a different pair of shoes the next day, they would stay there until my mom picked them up because I never saw my dad put away his own shoes in my whole life. And so those shoes would sit there. And I remember that if my dad wasn't there and the shoes were there, one of the things that thrilled my heart as a little five-year-old boy was to go put on my dad's shoes, 
right? And to go walking around the house in these gigantic shoes, trying to keep them on and acting like somehow I was the man of the house and I was the guy and I could handle this. But the truth of the matter is, I was clumsy, I was tripping, I was lost. That's kind of how it is when you're trying to fill shoes that are way too big for you to fill. And that memory came to me this week as I was thinking about trying to step into Cliff's shoes on that Sunday morning in 1992. I knew for sure that these shoes are way too big for me and everybody's gonna look at me and laugh because I'm gonna be stumbling clumsily around trying to fill these shoes. And that was the feeling that I had. In late 1991, as I knew I was getting ready to teach and preach on that Sunday morning in the beginning of 92, I was absolutely desperate to get a word from God. I was absolutely desperate to, um, to have a word from God for the people. And by the way, I don't know what you do when you're desperate for a word from God, but I don't call the psychic hotline. <laughs> and and I, I don't phone a friend. And I don't say, hey, I need a word from God. Does anybody have a word for me? What I do when I'm desperate and I know that I need to hear from God is I pick up this book and I read it. Because this, my friends, is the word of God. If you need to hear from God, I strongly recommend that you start reading your Bible because it is amazing what God will say to you when you give him your attention and actually listen by reading his word. Every profound thing I've ever learned has come from this book. And so I knew enough at that time that if I was desperate to have a word from God and if God was going to give a word to this church and inspire them and encourage them and move them toward greatness, he was going to do it through the Bible. And so there I was at the end of 1991 in my living room with the Bible open in my lap, crying out to God, saying, God, I need to hear from you. God, I need to know what you have to say. God, I need to know your message for these people. And amazingly, guess what God did? He spoke to me from his word. I was reading through the book of Philippians. And God did what God often has to do with me. He hit me between the eyes with a two by four. As I, was, as I was reading the beginning of the book of Philippians, and as I read those opening verses of Philippians, I knew that I was getting the word that God was giving me to share with his church at that time. And so 30 years ago, I preached that Sunday morning from the book of Philippians chapter one. And I have been preaching from Philippians chapter one, the beginning of January, every single year since then. And what that means is that you are now entering into uh, the longest sermon series in the history of this church. 31 installments over the last 30 years, we are now in Where do we go from here, part 31? And I didn't know it at that time, but this was going to become a staple message for our church from the word of God. So if you brought a Bible with you, turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter one, and I want you to join me there as we embark upon uh, 
version 31 of this message called Where Do We Go From Here? And it begins in Philippians chapter one, and we're gonna pick it up right at the beginning at verse one. Let me just read it to you. The first five verses go like this. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, we're just going to take a minute and we're going to run through this because I want us to understand where this is coming from. One of the big mistakes that we can make as Christians, one of the big mistakes that I see pastors making all the time, and one of the big mistakes I have made a time or two in my own life, is to fall in love with a verse of Scripture and lift it up out of the context that it was given to us in and try to make it say something that it was never really designed to say. When it comes to studying the Word of God, we have to understand it cannot mean to us what it could not have meant to them. There was an original audience. There was an original context. The Holy Spirit inspired every word of this through Paul's pen, and he inspired it for a reason. And so we need to understand before we just take a verse and lift it up and apply it in our lives in some way that God never intended. So let's look at this. Beginning in verse one, it tells us at the beginning of the letter who it's from. It's from Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Now the reference for this, and you can read this in your quiet times at home this week, the reference for this is Acts chapter 16. What happens in Acts chapter 16 is that uh, Paul and Timothy and Luke and Silas are traveling together and they're going from city to city and preaching the gospel. And they end up in this place called Philippi And Philippi is a Roman colony that is absolutely crucial, a very, very important city at that time because it becomes sort of the crossroads between Europe and the Middle East. And so the gospel begins with Jesus in Israel and it spreads out from there and this is the point as they enter into Philippi where for the first time in the history of the world, the gospel is coming to the continent of Europe. And so this is this crossroads where people leave Europe and go to the Middle East and they leave the Middle East and they go to Europe and Philippi becomes this essential city and it turns out to be an essential city in God's plan. And so they had been there in Acts chapter 16 and they had brought the gospel and it's really quite an amazing story how it all happened because the church at Philippi became one of the greatest churches in the history of the world. Literally, the Philippian church became one of the most significant churches the world has ever known. And Paul uses them as an example over and over again in his writings to other churches. And we still read about them today as an example of what a healthy church looks like and what it is like to actually walk with God as a local church. So this local church is this amazing church that Paul and Timothy are writing to. But how did this church begin? Well, God sent those four men to this city and um, the church began at that point and much sooner than any of them wanted and much sooner than any of them expected, what God did was he took those four great leaders and removed them from the church. Not what you would expect. Not in the church planting manual. 
This is not the way you start a great church, but this is exactly what happened. They show up in town, they share the gospel with this woman named Lydia outside of town, and Lydia and her family come to know Christ. And then they're staying with Lydia and her family for a couple of days, and while they're doing that, they come across this demon-possessed girl in the marketplace, and they cast the demon out of her, And that creates this huge stir and uproar. And all of a sudden, they're in big trouble and they're being taken into custody, Paul and Silas in particular. Now, um, Luke and um, who else did I say was there? No, not Luke and Silas. Did I mention that when you get old, you forget? Anyway, yeah. So Luke and Barnabas are Romans and and uh, Paul and Silas are Jews. So Luke and Barnabas get left out of this arrest. Paul and Silas get arrested. They get beaten in the town square, and then they get thrown into a dungeon in the jail where they're locked into stocks and they're waiting whether they're gonna be executed in the morning or not. And so what do they do in that situation? They do what any of us would do. They sing praises to God in the midst of their most difficult situation. And while they're singing praises, again, you can look this up in Acts chapter 16, while they're singing praises to God, something amazing happens. The earth begins to shake and literally the doors to the jail open up and their chains fall off of them and God is delivering everyone and the jailer freaks out and he comes running down and and Paul says to him, don't worry, nobody's left. You're fine, you're not gonna get in trouble. And the jailer says, well, what happened? And Paul says, well, my God did this. He goes, I need to know about that God. Paul tells him about that God and they take him to the jailer's house and Paul and Silas lead the jailer's whole family to Christ. So now we have Lydia's family that knows Christ, probably a girl who used to be demon-possessed who now knows Christ, and now we have the, the jailer's family and then they get word that they have beaten these guys in the public square and they find out they are Roman citizens and they realize they're in serious trouble. And so they usher them out of town and tell them you're not welcome here anymore. That's how the Philippian church begins. All these great leaders, these great men of God, people whose names are in the pages of our Bible are given to this church to plant this church, to begin this church, to start a movement that is going to rock the world. And after they've been there a few days, what does God do? Removes their most treasured leaders from their midst. It's an astonishing picture. And that's why Paul and Timothy are now writing to them years later. Because despite those challenges, God was not finished with that church yet. And he continued the work that had begun in them. And so they were um, the founding leaders of this church. They had a heart for them. They wanted to make sure they were doing okay. So verse one tells us, yeah, this is gonna take a while. I'm still on verse one, sorry. Verse one tells us, who wrote the letter, Paul and Timothy. And the second half of verse one turns out to be really important because it says this, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. In other words, I am not writing this letter to one person, Paul says. I am writing this letter to you collectively as a local church. This is a letter to all of you. This is a letter to the church. It is a letter for all of us. One of the mistakes that gets made with this verse is we lift it up out of its context, forget that it was written to a local church, we write it in the bottom of a card that's trying to encourage somebody and say, God's 
not finished with you yet. Well, it may very well be true that God is not finished with that individual yet, probably is true, but that's not what this verse is saying. What this verse is saying in Philippians 1.6, which we haven't even gotten to yet, well, it's saying is that God has begun a good work in them as a congregation. And God is not finished with the good work he has begun in them as a congregation. So it's really important that we notice that it's written to all the saints who are in Philippi. Verse two, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what, every church is, that is healthy and, and alive and vibrant is founded in the grace and peace of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he reminds them of that. And then he says in verses three through five, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul continues to pray for them. He continues to praise God because he sees the way they are continuing to participate in the gospel and how the good news continues to go out from this church and how they continue to spread the gospel around the whole world. And guys, let us never forget this. This is a mark of a healthy, vibrant, living, spirit-filled local church. What God does with healthy churches is he uses those churches to invest in one another in discipleship so that people grow to the point where he can then send them out and they can invest in people elsewhere. That's what God does in healthy churches. That is a normal thing. That is God's strategy for reaching a whole world. And so the, um, the fact that their life as a church is not primarily about them is the point we should take from this. They exist for the glory of God. It's about their participation in the gospel. It's not about their comfort. And I remember reading that passage 30 years ago in preparing to preach that first sermon. And I remember thinking, man, I want our church to one day be known as a church who continues in the participation in the gospel. I want God to use our church to lead people to Christ, to train up people in the, in the gospel, to, to build the word of God into the hearts of people, to see people become more mature. Why? So that God can use them wherever they are. It might be in your own oikos, in your house, in your, in your workplace, or whatever, or it might be that he's gonna send you to the ends of the earth because that's that's where he wants to use you to participate in the gospel. That's been my prayer for this church all those years. And so I am not surprised every time God brings us new people and then builds into them and trains them up and then sends them somewhere else where they're going to make a difference. I know we're all dealing, and next week we'll be talking about this directly and, and specifically about the McDonald family who is a part of our church staff who's gonna be leaving, and next week will be their last week with us, and I know that that is, you have no idea how difficult it is for me, and I know it's difficult for you. It's not an easy thing to do, and yet I absolutely rejoice in knowing that that that's what it means for a church to be about the participation in the gospel. God is spreading the word. And Paul is looking back on the history of the Philippian church, a church that lost its founders, lost its key leaders long before they were ready to go on without leaders. 
a church that had displayed the power of God by growing and by touching lives and by spreading the gospel and by making disciples and by sending them out despite losing those prominent leaders. A church that has a track record of what Paul calls participation in the gospel. Here's how I would say it. There was no way to explain the Philippian church apart from the miraculous power of God. That has been my prayer for this church for 30 years. That there would be no way to explain what God is doing apart from the miraculous power of God. And when he thinks about all of that evidence of God's powerful work among the Philippians, what is Paul confident of? He's confident that the same God who began a good work in them so many years ago would be completing the work that he had begun. He is confident of this. God is not going to leave you, Philippians. God is not going to forsake you. But God is gonna continue the good work which he had begun in them. But how did he know that? How can Paul say, read with me in verse six, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. How does he know that? It's because he knows the character of God. It's because God doesn't change. He knew that God cannot be thwarted. He knew that God always keeps his promises and that's never going to change. He knew that God completes whatever he sets out to do because there is no one and nothing that is strong enough to actually get in the way of God. He knew God and because he knew God, he knew God would keep his promises. Because he knew God, he knew that God would finish the work he had begun. And he also knew something about the history of the Philippian church. He knew something about the impact of that church, about the health of that church, about their participation in the gospel. And he knew that it wasn't dependent upon any person, it was dependent upon Christ. And what God begins, God brings to maturity. That's your amen opportunity, so I'm gonna say that again. What God begins, God brings to maturity. Amen. Some of you have been a part of this church for decades. And, and maybe some of you, this is your first Sunday with us. Maybe, maybe you're just flipping around the internet and you found this message. I don't know. Some of you have watched God's faithfulness lead and guide this congregation over the decades. And others of you, all you know of Grace Fellowship is the version of Grace Fellowship that you see before you now. And, and that's all you really know of this church. But whether you're a charter member or whether the, this is your first Sunday with us, I have a message to you from the word of God. The church is not about you. Not the most common message being preached from pulpits today. I realize that there is pressure put on church leaders to say, we've got to make people feel like all their needs are being met and all their wants are being taken care of and the church is a fun place and the church is exciting. I hope the church will be all of those things for you, but all I have to say to you is that according to God's word, the church is not about you. And it's not about me. 
I would even go further than that and say the local church is not about all of us collectively. And the local church is not even about the work that God wants to do for those who are not yet a part of the local church. That's not primarily what the local church is about. This church is about Jesus Christ and his glory. It's about his mission. It's about his power. It's about his purposes. And it's about his glory. He is the one who began a good work in us. And he is the one that will bring that work to full maturity. I was feeling nostalgic this year as I was preparing for this message. So I did a couple things that I don't ever really remember doing before in the same way. Two things. One is, Last week, um, as, as most of you are aware, uh, we canceled our services because of the spike and half our staff had COVID and all of that kind of stuff. And so we said, all right, we need to take a Sunday off. <clears throat> and what we did was encourage people and said, hey, go watch an old service and, and worship with your family at home that way. And Christy and I did exactly that. And we decided that the old service we would watch would be the one from the first Sunday of 2021. Last year's Philippians 1.6. It helps to do that so I don't use the same illustrations every year. <clears throat> but we started watching this, Where Do We Go From Here, Part 30. And we watched that service from last year. The second thing I did that I don't usually do, feeling nostalgic, was I went back and looked for the notes from my sermon back in 1992, Part 1 of this series. And I don't have them. Couldn't find them anywhere. And believe it or not, they weren't on YouTube 30 years ago. And, uh, but what, what I did find was the notes from part two that came one year after that. Here they are. Handwritten, yellow paper. What do we have here? Like uh, 14 pages of handwritten Doug's chicken scratch. Um, from part two of Where Do We Go From Here, which I preached a year after we preached part one. And it was fascinating to read that notes, those notes. Because in that message, I mentioned that uh, I had seen God working in the church during that year in tremendous ways. And I, and I referenced some of the things that I had seen God doing over the course of 1992. We went in that year for being a leader-centered church. There's no one who was there at that time who would say it was anything but a leader-centered church. And I'm not knocking anybody for that. It was just that he was that dynamic of a leader. So we had this leader-centered church and we went from being a leader-centered church to a church family where everyone locked arms, did their part, and used their gifts. That was a huge change that took place that year. We, we became really an example of 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 where Paul talks about how there's one body that has many members and every member has a function and we began to function as a church family. New ministries had begun in that year of 1992. More people had been reached because we lost half our people when Cliff left. And more people had been reached in 1992. People were giving sacrificially of their time. They were giving sacrificially of their talent and using their gifts. They were giving sacrificially from a financial standpoint in order to meet the needs of the vision that God had given us. All that had happened in that year. And God was giving us new vision. 
And he was giving us new assignments for the spreading of the gospel and the growth of the kingdom. And we could see that by the end of that year. It was, it was later the next year <clears throat> that we actually became an official church. It was that next year that we um, put together our first elder board, men that would lead the church. It was that year that we would actually purchase our first church property. And we planted two churches that year. Man, that's insane. How did that happen? We didn't have a decent leader among us. We didn't have any money in the bank. We didn't have our trusted um, senior pastor who knew what to do. We didn't have any experience. We didn't have any clue. You know what we had? The Holy Spirit. And somehow, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he did amazing things. It was so good for me to go back and read my chicken scratch. It was so good for me to go back and go, wow, just in that one year, God did amazing, amazing things. But why did that happen? Did it happen because I was such a great leader? No. (laughs) Did it happen because... Um, we possess tremendous wisdom and experience and resources? No. Was it because we had a great master plan and, he, and we knew exactly what steps to take? No. It was because the same God who began a good work in the Philippian church was the same God who began a good work in this church. It was because our God is faithful. It was because our God has all the resources. It was because our God had a plan, most of which we knew nothing about. And by his power and with his resources and by his grace and in his love and with his patience and for his glory, he took this ragtag group of people who had no business calling themselves a church and turned them into a dynamic force for the kingdom that would change the world forever. That's our God. He who began a good work in us was perfecting that good work. The sermon was entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? And the answer was, we're not exactly sure. That's the truth. But we were walking with the God who was sure. And that made all the difference. And he's not just sure, by the way, our God. He's able. He's able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or even think according to the power that works within us. And we're here 29 years later is living proof of his faithfulness. As I said, I went back and I watched the video uh, of part 30 of this series from last January. And it was pretty eye-opening too. First thing that I noticed is the building was empty. January of 2021, we had not gathered together for a worship service since March of that year, since March of 2020. It had been almost a year since we'd even gathered. And so there I was in our little makeshift studio that we built over there, and the band was up here on the stage playing to nobody, at least in the room, and, and I was preaching from over there to an empty room. And I noticed that immediately. And I noticed that the message 
was about how much we were all looking forward to closing the door on the evil 2020 and marching into the new promised land of 2021. We were, we were excited about the prospect of walking out of something difficult and into something infinitely better. <clears throat> but today, I am not thinking that way. Because what we learned in 2021 is something we should have known all along. Life's hard. And it's so tempting to live our lives with an if-only perspective. Uh, you know, if only COVID was not an issue. If only the economy was doing better. <clears throat> if only my marriage was stronger. If only I had more money. If only I had better health. If only I could get a new boyfriend. If only I had a better car or whatever, then life would be better. And if we live with that if only attitude, we are going to miss what God has in store for us. But guess what? Being great, life being great is not dependent upon your circumstances being easy. In fact, the Bible warns us that things in this world are going to keep getting worse as time goes on. I know this is such an encouraging message, but listen to this. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter um, 3, let me just read this to you real quick. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, listen to what it says. Uh, beginning in verse 1, it says, but realize this. That in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these." That's what the Bible says we have to look forward to. That actually the condition of man's heart apart from Christ doesn't get better, it gets worse. And, and when I read those words and I thought, man, people who are irreconcilable, is there a better word to describe our culture today than irreconcilable? Nobody seems to be able to come together and reconcile over anything. And, and lovers of money and gossips and malicious and treacherous and the, and the words go on and on. <clears throat> so why are we shocked <clears throat> when life is difficult? When life doesn't go exactly as we would hope. You know, and Jesus also spoke to this. In John chapter 16, these are the words of Jesus himself. He said, in this world you will have tribulation. He didn't say in this world you may have tribulation. He said in this world you will have tribulation. So we have to get past this idea that we're walking out of a hard time into a trouble-free time. I think this is tearing us up. I think that as a society, this idea that if we could just turn the page on the COVID era, or we could just get another political group to lead us, or if we could just fix our financial situation, we could just get a job, or whatever it is, we, if only, if only, if only, we have this idea that things will be fine. Listen, things are never going to be fine until you get to heaven. 
But Jesus is still on the throne. And he is still doing what he is doing. And he can still be trusted because he who begins a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So the issue is not what kind of time are you walking in. The issue is who are you walking with? What did David say in Psalm 23? He said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. It's not about whether you walk through valleys and shadows. Of course you will. We're not done walking through valleys and shadows as a church. We're not done walking through valleys and shadows as individuals and as families. Life still hard. And yet, the question is, do we have to live in fear? Or can we hold the hand of the Lord and say, I will fear no evil for you are with me. We're gonna keep walking through some valleys in 2022. I don't know exactly where they all are, but I know we're gonna walk through some valleys. And you know what else we're gonna do in 2022? We're gonna stand on some marvelous peaks. But let us never forget that God has called us to walk with him. And in Christ, he's made that possible. Listen, I have all kinds of plans. You have no idea. I have all kinds of plans for 2022. For this church, all kinds of goals and objectives and hopes and dreams and thoughts. You're gonna be hearing for the weeks ahead about a lot of specific things. There's a lot of questions that we've got to address. What are we going to do about our staffing situation? How do we deal with the fact that Pastor Ricky, who's become such an essential part of what we do here, is no longer going to be here? There are answers to those questions and you'll be hearing them. Don't worry, we'll get them to you. We have budget questions. How in the world in this economy where everything is getting 10 times more expensive are we gonna be able to afford to do the things that God has called us to do? Those are questions. We have plans for that. We have plans for ways that you can be involved, for ways we can lock arms and things you can do and how you can use your gifts and your voice to be a part of this solution of spreading the gospel and participating in the gospel. But for today, I don't want us to get distracted from the main thing. The success of 2022 and beyond will be far less about what steps we're taking and far more about whose hand we're holding as we take those steps. What did Jesus say when he called some random fishermen to become world-changing leaders? He said, follow me, and in the process, I will make you who you need to be. That's what God does when we walk with him. What might God do with you and me if we would just answer the call to follow Jesus? If we would just answer the call to draw near to him and let him draw near to us? What could God do with this church if if all of us individually and collectively were devoted to the concept of walking with him wherever he should happen to take us? How much could God change the world through little old us? It's been a wild adventure since 1992. I stepped into that pulpit with my knees knocking, wondering if I was gonna get through the sermon without throwing up. And, and wondering if anybody was even gonna hear the whole thing or if they were all just gonna get up and walk out in the middle of it. It's been a wild ride since then but I wouldn't trade any of it for anything. 
Because as I have walked with him, as we have walked with him collectively as, <coughs> as a church family, we have learned that it is not nearly so much about where you're walking as it is about who you're walking with. So you wanna know what to expect from me and the leaders of this church in 2022? You could expect us to be doing everything we can to spur you on to walking more with him. You can expect us to lead this church to a place where we are collectively walking more with him. In 2022, it is my prayer that we will all work together through the peaks and through the valleys, holding tightly to the hands of Jesus. And as we do, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, as we think about not only the history of Grace Fellowship and what you've been doing over 30 plus years in this church, and as we look back upon the history of the whole church universally, 2,000 years now that you've been making disciples and spreading the gospel and planting churches and changing the world, we are so humbled and honored to be invited by you to be a part of that great quest. We thank you, God, that it is not up to us to provide the power. It's not up to us to provide the resources. It's not up to us to come up with the great ideas. It is up to us merely to draw near to God while he draws near to us. It is up to us merely to hold your hand so that while we walk through valleys or as we climb over peaks, we will not have to be afraid because you are with us. And so we pray, God, this year that each and every one of us and all of us collectively would walk with you so that wherever you take us, God, we'll be able to rejoice because of our participation in the gospel. And we thank you that we can trust you to complete the good work you've begun in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.